three more sermons, Lord willing, in the book of Revelation. I, I have enjoyed it immensely as well. Thanks, Dave, for that reading and for that introduction. And uh, as we've been making our way through the book of Revelation, I've been praying frequently during our series. I hope you have as well, that Jesus would come back, especially before we got to chapter 20. As you probably know, Revelation 20 is the single most debated chapter in the entire book of Revelation. The, the debate swirls around the meaning of the first resurrection that we read about and the thousand years during which believers share Christ's kingly rule. Someone has said the millennium is the thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. <laughs> well, we're not going to fight about it. Because my first point in the sermon this morning is our charitable disposition. I want to say two things on the front end about how we approach Revelation 20, and really many parts of the book of Revelation in particular. While the big points of Revelation, God wins, the church will be persecuted, judgment will happen, the earth will be renewed, Christ is coming again, all those big truths that are at the heart of our faith, every Christian agrees with. Sometimes the timing and the details and how all those things will be work out, worked out, we, we differ on, which is totally appropriate, especially when we come to a book like Revelation, which as we've talked about throughout the series, is apocalyptic literature, it's symbolic in nature, and as we approach it, the symbolism can sometimes lead to various interpretations. But I want to say two things about our charitable disposition, about the book of Revelation in particular, but specifically chapter 20. First of all, disagreements about the millennium should be expected among God's people. None of us in this room has totally figured out the mysterious plans and purposes of the infinite God of the universe. There are main things that God has made absolutely clear. God has so loved a sinful world that he sent his one and only son that whoever turns from that sin will no longer have to bear his wrath, but rather that wrath was absorbed on the cross and to show his power over sin, Christ was, redeemed, was resurrected, and all who repent and believe in him will be redeemed and reconciled to God forever and ever. Those things are crystal clear, and as Christians, we don't have any disagreement about any of that. To be a Christian is to believe that. But we must distinguish between central issues of the faith and issues that aren't central. Some Christians have a hard time doing that. Everything for them is of equal importance in the Bible. But that's just not true. The Bible doesn't talk about that that way either. The Bible says there are, quote, as Jesus said, weightier matters of the law. There are greater commandments. They're, in fact, the greatest commandment. The Bible talks often of the things we give. Uh, e we shouldn't give equal importance to everything in the Bible because the Bible itself doesn't give equal importance to everything in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'm writing to you what's of first importance. That is the gospel, that Christ lived and died and was raised from the dead. So if there's a first importance, there must be things that are secondary, and Scripture has that repeatedly. There are some things that are absolutely non-negotiable to our faith. What Derek's going to talk about in his class, June 6th to July 12th, is non-negotiable, at least the doctrine of the Trinity. It's non-negotiable. The authority of Scripture is non-negotiable. Substitutionary atonement is non-negotiable. Justification by faith alone is non-negotiable. The deity of Christ is non-negotiable. And we could go on and on and on. But our interpretation of the millennium and some difficult parts of Revelation, very negotiable. J. Gresham Mason, who was seriously concerned about 
the premillennialism that was taking place in his day, if you don't understand what that term means, I'll explain it in a, in, in a little bit. Nevertheless, even though he was, quote, seriously concerned about that premillennialism, he said, yet how great is our agreement with those who hold the premillennial view. They share our reverence for the authority of the Bible, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, and the return of Christ. Certainly then, from our point of view, serious though it may be, is not deadly error, and Christian fellowship still unites us to them. Secondly, while disagreements about, about the millennium should be expected, division over the millennium should never be tolerated. We must beware of being divisive, schismatic, and inflexible on matters that are less important. I agree with Mark Dever when he says, quote, what you believe about the millennium is not something that is necessary for us to agree upon in order to be a congregation together. So if you're a pastor and you're listening to me, and he would be talking to me right here, you understand me correctly that if you think I'm saying you are in sin, if you lead your congregation to have a statement of faith that requires a particular millennial view, I do not understand why that has to be a matter of uniformity in order for, to have Christian unity in a local church. Which is true, which is why we don't. Neither Any of our confessions of faith don't require a specific view of the millennium in order to be a member of our church. So that's, that's our charitable disposition. We're going to enter into this, and I've definitely got my perspective, and I'm going to give it to you this morning, but we're going to maintain a charitable disposition because disagreements about the millennium should be expected, but division over the millennium should never be tolerated. That's our first point. Second point, three various options. I want to lay out the various options. This is going to feel a little more teachy, Okay, so I want you to be aware of that on the front end. We're going to get to the preaching on the end, and I'm going to preach the glorious truths of this chapter. But I want, to, I want to give us on the front end the three major views that are basically held as we approach the subject of the millennium. And those would be premillennialism, premillennialism postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And I'll talk about those individually. First of all, premillennialism. What do we refer to as premillennialism? Well, obviously the suffix pre indicates before. So this is before the millennium. That's what premillennialism means. So this refers to the millennium, a thousand-year period. Some people see it as literal. Some people view it as symbolic. But regardless, it's, it's a thousand-year period that is being preceded by Christ's return to the earth. So Christ will return to the earth, and that will initiate a thousand-year millennium, whether it's literal or figurative. Uh, premillennialists do debate about that. But premillennialism holds the following points. Here they are. I'll give you three of them. Number one, Christ will return at the end of this age, at the end of the Great Tribulation, with his saints to the earth to reign for a thousand years as king. In the millennium, number two, Israel will experience the blessings that God promised to Abraham and David pertaining to Israel's land, seed, and kingship promises. New Testament believers will likewise share in these covenant blessings, having been engrafted into the one people of God, according to Romans 11. And then number three, Jesus will rule over the earth as the promised Messiah, as the seed of David. And this kingdom will be inaugurated at his second coming and therefore at the end of the tribulation. The millennium is an intermediate kingdom then of a thousand years before the establishment of the eternal state or the final and fulfillment of the fullest manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. So that's premillennialism. It is a very, very popular view among the church today. It was the dominant view in many ways in the early church. 
For instance, people like Clement and Polycarp and Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Cyprian all apparently held that view. Later, during the Reformation, William Tyndale, then John Wesley, followed by many 19th and 20th century theologians like Billy Graham, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, Danny Aiken, Al Mohler, Russ Moore, Wayne Grudem, Don Carson, and John Piper all hold to a form of premillennialism. So this isn't light heavyweight here. This is heavyweight. These are heavyweight dudes who um, hold to these views, plus many, many godly women. A word of response, though. The notion of promises specifically fulfilled for the Jews in the millennium is not mentioned in Revelation 20. It just isn't there. Nor is this idea found, I would argue, in the rest of the New Testament. The New Testament maintains that Jews and Gentiles are equal members of the people of God, and the notion of Jews having a special place in the millennium seems to contradict, in my view, the New Testament witness that all believers are children of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 4, Galatians 3, other parts of Scripture. But that's the premillennial view. Let me move secondly to postmillennialism. Well, if pre has to do with before, post has to do with after. So this is uh, a view of the timing of the millennium, not placing it before Christ or preceded by Christ's return to earth, but after Christ returns. So the, the prefix post means that after, and thus postmillennialism means that Christ's second coming will occur not before the millennium, but after it. And the tenets of this view are these. I'll give you again three of the main points regarding this view. First, the church is not the kingdom, but it will bring in the kingdom, which is sort of a utopian, Christianized condition in the world to the earth by the preaching of the gospel. It's a very optimistic view of the future progress of the gospel in the earth and that vast majorities of people will be converted and the church will continue to grow exponentially. Second, Christ will not be on the earth during the kingdom, but he will rule in the hearts of his people and he will return to the earth after the millennium. And then third, the church, not Israel, will receive the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and David in a very spiritual sense. Now again, there are no lightweights who have held this view either. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Wesley, not John, but they differed over the, the millennium. Charles Hodge, Lorraine Bettner, B.H. Carroll, B.B. Warfield, and most recently, popular teachers of postmillennialism would include probably R.C. Sproul and Doug Wilson. Now, a word of response. Scripture clearly seems in my mind to indicate that evil will be intensified over the course of the age. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be progress for the gospel and there won't be um, great, in some ways, some, some really limited but real success of the gospel in the earth. But rather, Scripture seems to indicate in Matthew 24, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 3, that evil will, will intensify more and more before the end of the age. And that, in my mind, doesn't give us a whole lot of hope that things will get much better before Christ's second coming. Thirdly, ah, millennialism. Now, I think that's kind of an unfortunate t term. I mean, these are theologians invented these categories because ah, millennialism means no, no millennium. Well, amillennialists don't believe in no millennium. They believe in a realized millennium, which is occurring now. 
it, it, it believes that there is no literal reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years. So in that sense, amillennialism is appropriate. It's, it's just kind of confusing because it seems to be like if you read it and you say, wait, they're talking about a thousand years here. You don't even believe in that? No, we do. But we don't believe it's a literal fulfillment of Christ's reign on earth for a thousand years. So first, the, there's three basic tenets here of the, of the amillennial position too. First, the millennium or the kingdom reign of Christ and his saints is in existence for the period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In that sense, we are in the millennium right now. Second, there will be no future reign of Christ on the earth prior to the new earth and new heavens, and the word thousand here is symbolic, indicating a long period of time. And then third, the promises to Israel about a land, seed, and throne are being fulfilled now in a spiritual sense in the church, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. Those would be the main tenets of amillennialism. Now, who's held this view? Again, many godly teachers, even those in the early church, like Origen or Augustine or John Wycliffe or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Org Zwingli and several in the modern era, including Louis Burkhoff, Graham Goldsworthy, William Hendrickson, Vern Poitras, Greg Beale, Mark Dever, and David Platt. So, before I give my interpretive position, I appreciate the spirit of Scotty Smith when he writes the following. He says, no amillennialist is going to pout if the postmillennialist is right. <laughs> no postmillennialist is going to have his feelings hurt if amillennialism proves to be more consistent with the unfolding of the history of redemption. Premillennialists are not going to high-five one another for a thousand years in the face of dejected post-mills and ah-mills, should their view on these matters be realized in history. The good news is that all Christians are going to enjoy fully everything won for us by our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what our position on the millennium is. It's all good news. It really is. It's all good news. It's just which one seems to wrestle with the vast amount of the biblical content and the, the book of Revelation specifically as most faithful. So with that in mind and those introductory kind of points made, let's move to my interpretive position number three, and then I'm going to uh, lay it out in point number four with the main truths that we see in Revelation chapter 20. Now, before I defend the view, remember our posture. Discuss it? Yes, absolutely. Debate it? Yes, absolutely. Divide over it? No. Good, godly men and women who believe the Bible differ on this issue. In fact, one of my closest friends holds a different view. I have several friends who hold different views. I greatly love and respect them. I learn from them. I really don't have a deep-seated desire to change their mind, although if it comes up, we'll certainly talk about it. But having said all that, I think amillennialism is the best position for interpreting the book of Revelation. And I want to offer seven reasons, you know, just because. In keeping with Revelation's pattern of completeness and perfection. All right, let's talk about why I see this. And then we'll look at the, look at the truths in the chapter that I think support it. So first of all, and, and, and I'll, I'll try to argue from the, from the most persuasive to kind of the least persuasive. So first, nowhere else in scripture is a literal thousand-year millennium clearly taught, and a new doctrine should not be founded on an intensely controversial text, especially from apocalyptic book of, full of symbolism. Now, some historic pre-mill guys would come back and say, wait, I, I don't believe in a literal thousand years. It can be symbolic. Okay, 
but, you're in, but those will be in the minority among most pre-mill people. They would, they would see it as a, as a literal fulfillment. The, the, but the pushback comes with, I think we should take the Bible literally. And exactly. I think we should take it literally where intended literally. But literally, John is using symbols. The literal interpretation requires a symbolic interpretation. That's my argument. The 1,000 years should be understood like every other number in Revelation, symbolically. 1,000 communicates fullness. We've seen it over and over again. 144,000 in chapter 7 is the whole number of God's people. 12 tribes times 12 apostles times 1,000. It's the number of bigness, fullness, largeness. Psalm 50 God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Ah, uh, only a thousand, though. Dad, your hills are thousand and one. God doesn't own no cattle. You do. <laughs> only a thousand? No, of course not. Psalm 84, 11. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. What about the days beyond a thousand? Oh, they're terrible. Those days in God's courts beyond a thousand are miserable. No, of course not. It's communicating fullness. It's communicating bigness. That's the first reason. Number two. Second, we've seen that Revelation is recursive and recapitulatory. That is, it comes back to the same things again and again from different angles. Remember, we've said it's, it's not like a movie where we're watching one scene leading to the next scene, leading to the less, less, next scene in some sort of linear chronological fashion. Rather, it's like visiting an art gallery. We're looking at this picture, and then this picture, and then this picture, and they're individually different visions, different pictures. So that's what I mean by recursive or recapitulatory. So it's coming to the end and then telling the same story again from a fresh perspective. So how does that fit in with Revelation 20? Well, I'm glad you asked. The book of Revelation shows a series of cycles of the same events spanning from the first coming to the second coming of Jesus, human history from the resurrection to the return of Christ from several different vantage points. For instance, you have seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. You've got seven seals in chapters 4 through basically chapter 8. You've got seven trumpets from the second half of chapter 8 through chapter 11. You've got seven visions which compromise chapter 12 through the first part of chapter 15. Then you've got seven bowls from chapters 15 and 16. Then you have seven judgments, which we've been considering over the last several weeks in chapters 17 through 19. And then seven visions, which begin from 1911 on through 21 verse 8, where Christ rides out to rule the nations in chapter 19 verses 11 through 16. He calls to gather the harvest for destruction in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 19. Satan is bound in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Satan is defeated in chapter 20, verses 4 through 10. There's a final judgment in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And there's a new creation in chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. So these seven visions follow the same pattern as all the others. Visions 1 through 5 occurring within history, and 6 and 7 describing the end and beyond. So I think Revelation 20 fits that symbolic vision recapitulation, recursive understanding of Revelation. Third, the promises of a renewed world and a new temple in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 60 or Ezekiel 40 to 48, which many see as applying to the millennium, are not alluded to in Revelation 20 and are copiously referenced in Revelation 21 and 22 and apply to the new creation. So I'm saying rather than seeing the temple or an establishment of a temple 
uh, like the Old Testament applying to the millennium, it applies to the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, Lord willing. The temple is the new earth. This suggests that the promises of a renewed world and a new temple in the Old Testament are fulfilled not in the millennium, but in the new creation itself. Fourth, the argument about the early church being nearly unanimous on premillennialism isn't as clear as many would like to think. Tom Schreiner mentions, in fact, that the best scholarship, like Charles Hill's book, Patterns of Millennial Thought in the Early Church, revealed that the early church was not settled on the millennium. There was a dominant position among those who wrote, but not necessarily among everyone um, in, in early Christianity. So it's disputed, and, uh, but it is the case that Amil appears to have been around the longest. I'll just throw that out there. Uh, fifth, the historic pre-mill view has difficulty explaining the unglorified people in the millennium, for when Jesus returns at the end of chapter 19, he destroys all of his enemies. Now, it's difficult to see how some were left on earth who survived Jesus' return. The New Testament clearly teaches Jesus' return is the day of reward and judgment for all in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Two more. Sixth, Scripture nowhere separates out the timing of the final resurrection, the final judgment, victory over death, arrival of new creation, and second coming of Christ. These are presented, in, from my understanding, as a total package in Scripture. They all come together, and there is no indication in any other text that these great events should be separated. And then seventhly and finally, amillennialism fits best with, I think, the rest of the Scriptures. As we'll see in our next point, this view overwhelmingly fits best with what we've already seen in Revelation and, is, and what is taught by Jesus and the apostles in both the Gospels and the letters. So with that stated, and you may be persuaded by that, you may not be, but I hope in, at the end of the day you will see where it's coming from as we walk now into Revelation 20 and spend the rest of our time looking at four main truths from this chapter, which are beautiful and glorious and give God's people hope. So first... Uh, main truth from Revelation chapter 20 is Christ has come once and Satan has been bound. Christ has come once and Satan has been bound. Look at verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, that needs some explanation, though. The language of Satan being bound is only used by one other person in the New Testament, besides the Apostle John. Who is it? Jesus. In Matthew 12, 28... Jesus says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, which is what Jesus is saying it, it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then Jesus continues in Matthew 12, 29 with this. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Look, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has come upon you. How do you know? Because the strong man is bound. The God of this world Satan has been bound. All right? So, how do we know he's bound? Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is showing his authority over demons. Jesus is in the process of plundering his house, which is the earth. 
The whole picture we have in the Gospels is Jesus doing exactly that, exerting his authority over this world, over sin, over suffering, and Satan. And the reason he can do it is because Satan has been bound. Now, the evidence for this binding comes up in response from Jesus' disciples after being sent out by him on a missions trip. Remember Luke chapter 10? When the 72 disciples returned, Luke 10, 17 and 19, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan falling from heaven as a flash of lightning. And I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. So Jesus does this first in his life and then in his death on the cross. Colossians 2.15 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, talking about satanic opposition, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Christ has come once, Satan has been bound through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Now remember Revelation 12, we preached on Easter, when Satan was thrown down and a loud voice in heaven proclaimed, salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the scene there in Revelation 12 is eerily similar to the scene in Revelation 20. Both start with a heavenly setting. Both describe or suppose an angelic battle between Satan and God. And after that, Satan is cast down and Christians reign over him as they proclaim the gospel in their lives. This is not a future reign. This is a present reign a reign that's inaugurated by Christ in his death and resurrection, and a reign that's now being experienced by Christians who conquer Satan by their testimony to Christ. So in that sense, brothers and sisters, the millennium is now. The present age of the church between the first and second comings of Christ. During this time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, Satan is bound. He's restrained. It doesn't mean he has no influence. It means he has limited influence according to the will and purpose of Christ. It doesn't mean he's not active. Revelation 20 is not showing us a complete cessation of the devil's influence on the earth. Satan being thrown into a pit, shut up and sealed for a thousand years, should not be interpreted literally as though he has no influence. He's just out of sight, out of mind. No, rather it means he, this is symbolic imagery of him being bound. It's just a picture of what being bound looks like. That's all it is restricted from accessing a particular task. People who are shut up and bound and sealed can't do what they're trying to do. That's the point, I think. Now, before we get to why he was bound, notice why he's not bound. Satan was not bound so that he should no longer persecute Christians. He does not say that Satan was bound so that he would no longer concoct schemes to try to disrupt the church's unity. He does not say that Satan was bound so that he could no longer hurl his flaming missiles at Christians. No, why is he bound? The angel says he was bound for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. What happened after Christ came and he defeated the devil on the cross? Immediately after this happened, what did Jesus say? Go and make disciples of all nations. 
Repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Be my witnesses, Acts 1.8, to the very ends of the earth. We have hope that the mission will be accomplished because Satan has been bound. And his influence to deceive the nations is restricted by the conquering Christ. This is why we're sending our friends next week and recommissioning them. We wouldn't send them if Satan was not bound. We have no hope. But the fact that he is means that he can't deceive that area of the world any longer. Not according to Christ, if Christ is willing to conquer his work there. And that's exactly what happens, right? For the first time, as you see the book of Acts unfold, the gospel of God's grace begins to move into the Gentile world, which is the nations. It's the whole first half of the, really, well, second half of the book of Acts after they kind of focus on Jerusalem and Judea. And, but what is happening in the book of Acts, the nations are beginning to come to faith in Christ. The nations who for centuries and generations were living in darkness and deceived by darkness now see a great light. Because of the coming of Christ, Satan has been bound and his gospel is going forth unhindered to all peoples. That's the point. Satan cannot keep the church from proclaiming the gospel and he cannot keep the nations from believing the gospel. He is bound the Lamb has purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And one day soon, according to Revelation 7-9, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, is going to stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Satan is bound. He can't keep that from happening. So Acts 26, verses 16 through 18, lays this out very clearly. But rise, stand upon your feet, Paul says, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in, to which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the power from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So though Satan still blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is providentially restricted from hindering the pervasive expansion of the gospel in the world. He may win the occasional battle, friends, but Christ wins the war. The war belongs to him and he's going to win it. That's the first major truth. All right, the first major truth, Christ has come once, Satan has been bound. Here's the second major truth, and these will come a little bit quicker. Christians who are alive now with Christ on the earth reign with him, and Christians who have died now reign with Christ in heaven. So look at verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So these would have been Christians who have died. Say, so how do you know that? Well, let's just keep reading. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Is a clear description of believers. They came to life and reigned for, with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, this needs some explanation. This picture in chapter 20 of souls who have been beheaded for their testimony to Christ, men and women who did not bow the knee to the beast, who are they, where are they now? 
they're reigning with Christ. They're seated on thrones in heaven with him where they're worshiping Christ as priests while they, judge, or while they rule with Christ as judge. Now we've seen a scene similar to this already in Revelation 6. Remember where saints were surrounding the throne of God and they cried out for, for God's justice to come and his retribution to come against those who had killed them. There are numerous parallels between Revelation 6, 9 and Revelation 20, verse 4. I want you to turn back with me. So look at just 6, 9. We're going to look at one verse in chapter 6. I want you to see the similarities. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, there's, there's 6, 9. That was the right prior to as the fifth seal is being opened up. And then if you look back at 20, verse 4, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So what we see here is the phrases came to life and first resurrection are referring to the men and women who did not give in to the ways of this world, who trusted in the word of God, who proclaimed it at the risk of their lives, and they're now reigning with Christ in heaven, worshiping him with resurrected lives that testify to his justice as they long for the consummation of redemption to come. They are alive. They are there. They are speaking. They are conscious. They are aware. They are like personalities, right? That I believe, is what John is talking about when he uses this phrase, the first resurrection. John is talking about the intermediate state in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, which seems obvious once the parallel with Revelation 6, 9 through 11 is noted. So a careful examination of these two passages will reveal that they're describing the same experience of believers who die and enter into the life of the intermediate state. They are reigning with Christ right now in heaven, having lost their lives in this earth for him. Third truth, Christ will come again, and when he returns, Satan will be destroyed. Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, that would be when this age is over in my view, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So... Revelation 20 says that after a final period of satanic revolt, there will be a final point of satanic defeat. When the millennial reign reaches its climax just before the second coming of Christ, Satan will be released from his prison. That is to say, the restraint that God has placed upon him during this present church age will be removed. Satan will immediately take steps. I mean, he's been cooped up for a while, and he's ticked. He is going to immediately try to create a coup to overthrow what is happening in the earth, to try to reestablish and reassert his dominance and his influence and his deception, to gather the unbelieving nations of the earth to make war on the people of God. This war is identical with the war of Armageddon that we read about earlier in Revelation 16 and again in Revelation 19. It's all referring to the same thing. These are simply different descriptions of the same final battle between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. 
Now, these unbelieving nations are symbolically referred to as Gog and Magog. Now, notice that Gog and Magog are constituted by verse 8, which says, the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. So Gog and Magog is just a way of referring to all the nations of the earth aligned in opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. Their number is like the sand of the sea, which is a standard way of describing a large group of people, innumerable multitude, all that. So in other words, from a strictly human standpoint, this final assault against the church will appear to be an easy win for the forces of Satan and evil. The number of those who gather to destroy the church is beyond calculation. But such is no problem for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Even though the enemies of Christ's kingdom surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city looking like a for sure takeover, they will have no more hope of defeating Christ, the King of the kings the Lord, and Lord of lords, the second time as they did the first time. Christ will return. He will enforce the victory he's already won at the cross, and he will destroy Satan and all he has deceived forever. That's the end. But we have one more truth. We've seen Christ has come once. Satan was bound. Christians who are alive now reign with Christ on the earth, and Christians who have died now reign with Christ in heaven. Christ will come again, and when he returns, Satan will be destroyed. Fourth truth, the return of Christ will usher in full and final judgment once and for all. And that's what we see in the last five verses. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, always referring to the end judgment, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final sobering vision. All men... All women everywhere, all boys, all girls, along with Satan and all of his demons will stand before God to give an account. And this ultimate judgment scene will give way to either eternal wrath in hell for all who have turned against Christ and everlasting life in a new heaven and a new earth for all those who have trusted in Christ. So I can't help but close with just a few applications. I want to start with the trivial, okay? From point number one about a charitable disposition, brothers and sisters, let's make sure, I, I, I believe our church largely has this disposition. I'm thankful for it. Let's continue to keep the main things the main things, okay? Let's love brothers and sisters who differ from us on this because there are, there are siblings in Christ. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. I have great, great respect for people that don't even agree with me on this. I wish I was more like them. Um, I would trade my, change my millennial position for their character any day. <laughs> because that's what really matters, is loving the Lord Jesus Christ from a, from, a, from a sincere heart, loving the Word of God, even if we differ on some of these minor things. Secondly, let's make sure we understand and don't straw men people's positions. Okay? It's so easy 
to, 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 to try to pick on the weakest spots. Let's, let's highlight the strong points too, which is what I've tried to do. I've tried to lay out people I love that support those positions and tried to represent those positions fairly, albeit in an abbreviated period of time due to the sermon. But nonetheless, trying to represent those positions fairly and commend them in positive ways, even if I disagree with them. Let's do, let's do that. Thirdly, let's remember, and this is most important, let's make sure we're on the right side of history. Right? This is history. This is where history's going. This is where history is now. This is what's happening in the world. Let's make sure our lives, our hearts, our priorities are oriented around these ultimate realities. What Satan is doing in the world, what God's doing in the world, what Christ is accomplishing in the world, who the church is in the world. And let's make sure our thinking is being governed by that so that we don't flip out when we see crazy things going on in the world. Of course we see, should see crazy things going on in the world. Satan has influence in the world. But we don't lose hope and we don't lose confidence because we know that Christ's people who have died in him are reigning with him now. Christ's people who are living on the earth right now, we are, we are reigning with him now. We are, we are new creations in Christ. We're, all, we're already a part of it. That's the glory of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who's in Christ is new creation. That's literally what it says. It doesn't say a new creation, like, oh, you're just a new person. Yeah, you are. But you're new creation. Brothers and sisters, you're new creation people. Let's live like new creation people, which is, means we get rid of all that old creation stuff in our lives because we, we're, we're headed toward heaven. We're, we're already there, as it were, at least... In Christ, we're there, and we're headed there. So let's get rid of that old stuff that tries to tie us down to the ways of this world. I'm not talking about becoming a Gnostic and just praying all the time. I'm talking about getting rid of what is earthly and demonic and unspiritual and fleshly in you so that we might live as new creation people. And if you have yet to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, now is the time to do it. There is going to be a book opened and it's going to have everything that you've ever thought, done, or failed to do that you were supposed to do in it. And you need a savior. You need somebody who will say, eh, put that book away. Get the book of life out. Is his name in the book of life? Is her name in the book of life? That's what matters. So you can choose your book. You've got the book of deeds, which is horrendous and awful for all of us because it's not just the stuff we've done. It's the stuff we haven't done. Imagine the list of sins of omission that will be there. All the stuff we were supposed to do, but never got around to it. No, I want my name in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Because there, blood covers all those deeds. Blood covers all those, negative, all those things that were done and all those things that were left undone because Christ fulfilled the law for you. He died in your place to absorb the wrath of God against your sin so that you can be fully righteous and fully forgiven forever. Can't offer you a better gospel than that. I hope you'll embrace it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news of your word, for the ways in which it instructs us to think about this life and what is most important and what is most critical. Lord, thank you for, I trust, using this service and this time together to recalibrate us to reality. Every week we come in a little bit crazy because the world is a crazy kind of place to live. But when we come in, we're like Asaph in Psalm 73. When I came to the household of God, he set my mind straight. He helped me to think right. 
So Lord, may you help us to do that in in this time together. May you use what was spoken here to equip your people for every good deed in your name and for works of ministry and works of service. And may we live our lives full out for the glory of of, of Christ and the advancement of his gospel. We ask for your grace in in this calling, for your help, for your enablement, for the power of your spirit to do such things. In the name of our risen and coming Jesus Christ, amen.